Deutschland und in Lopate. Rudolf Werber didn't just survive Auschwitz. In April 1944, when he was 19, he and his companion Fred Wetzler were the first Jews ever to escape from it. In his latest book, award-winning British journalist and best-selling novelist Jonathan Friedland tells the story of how Verba got away and what happened and failed to happen as a result. The book, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World, is published by Harper and brings Jonathan Friedland to our show now. Welcome. Hello there. Good to be with you. Was Rudolf Verba his uh, real name? Was he born Walter Rosenberg? How did he wind up Verba? That's right. He was born Walter Rosenberg in Slovakia in 1924. Um, but he, well, as we're going to come on to talk about, he did escape from Auschwitz, uh, one of just a handful of Jews who ever managed to do that. And once he did do that, he was then on the run and he was in hiding because there was a, a, an SS warrant mm. out for his arrest, an international arrest. It's reproduced actually in the book. You can see it there. The cable that went out from the SS sent to Gestapo police stations across the Nazi empire. It's in with German. His name. I couldn't read it. <laughs> Uh, with his name, and it said Walter Rosenberg, yeah. and that was the name he was born with. So he had to then have, be, uh, you know, a new name be issued with fake papers, mm. with um, Aryan papers, as it were, uh, to say that he was uh, a, a new person. And this, the the fake Aryan name he was given was Rudolf Verba, an impeccably Czech name. And Verba liked it, so he stuck with it, and that became the name his name for the rest of his life. VRBA, despite VRBA, yeah. despite the major role he played in our understanding of some very important aspects of the Holocaust, his name hasn't become as recognizable as the names of Primo Levi, Ile Wiesel, and Frank and Oscar Schindler. Is that because he could be a difficult person in the years following his escape? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, look, first of all, he definitely should be, his name should be bracketed uh, with those other towering figures. I suggest that as an act of witness to the Holocaust, he really stands up there with, you know, Primo Levi or Anne Frank. It was his report of what he'd seen inside Auschwitz that really led through a whole series of diplomatic moves to the um, uh, saving of about 200,000 Jewish lives. So his achievement is huge. And yet, as you say, he's not as well known as those people. And that is partly because, I argue in the book, that we have expectations of survivors of the Holocaust, indeed actually survivors of great trauma, that I think we often expect them to be these consoling, healing figures uh, who are full of almost holy wisdom that, you know, an encounter with a survivor of a great catastrophe, we somehow expect to be like an encounter with the Dalai Lama or something. And Rudolf Verber refused to play that role. I mean, I found a document where he writes to a TV producer, essentially warning the producer, saying, look, I am not the Holocaust survivor of cliché. You know, I'm not the cliched Holocaust survivor. I won't be that. I won't play that role. And what he meant by that was, somebody who would offer up a very, in some ways, comforting narrative, which is look, the only bad guys in the story were the Nazis and everyone else were heroes. And that's not how hmm. he told the story. Instead, he put a lot of blame at those people who failed to pass on the warning 
Um, and that's the crucial point. He escaped from Auschwitz in order to live to deliver a warning to the remaining Jews of Europe. Look, this is what will happen to you if you get on those trains. And his warning was not passed on as much uh, or it didn't go as far or as wide as he wanted. And that's, even by Jewish authorities. Well, that's right. So, you know, he 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 had a lot of people to point the finger to. You know, we can talk about this, including, you know, Winston Churchill in London, Franklin D. Roosevelt in Washington, people who had not acted quickly enough or extensively enough. But yes, he did believe the Jewish leadership in Hungary had failed. Forget him. They'd failed their own communities because they had in their hands the report he and his fellow escapee, Fred Wetzler, had authored that was detailed chapter and verse forensic account of what had happened, what was happening in real time in Auschwitz-Birkenau, and they had not passed it on for a whole variety of reasons, some of them complicated, some of them, you know, still morally debated and contested very fiercely, but they did not pass on his warning, and that, he believed, was a, a terrible moral failing by those people, and he was angry with them, and therefore... Somebody I spoke to said, you know, you even in Rudy Verber's eventual final hometown of Vancouver in Canada, you know, they wouldn't invite mm. Rudolf Verber to the annual sort of Holocaust commemoration seminar discussion attended by high school students because, said this former colleague, you know, you couldn't be sure Rudolf Verber wouldn't descend into, quote, accusations and rage. And that's not what people wanted. And I believe in some ways it's not what people want from people who have survived great ordeals. We want them to tell us in a way that it was all, everything's going to be okay. Well, when he and died Verba in didn't do that. When he died in 2006, only a handful of people attended his funeral and just 40 were there for his memorial service nine months later. And you write that although younger Jews believe Verba, the majority were more like the French philosopher Raymond Aron, who said, I know, but I don't believe it. And because I don't believe it, I didn't know. Um, yeah, that, that, I, that's, I knew. I'm... So he, in the end, uh, well, we'll talk about how effective he was in ultimately. But I want to go back to uh, a little bit about him because he's an impressive character, even he though is. he was uh, expelled from school when he was fourteen because he was Jewish. He was self-taught. He learned German, Czech, Slovak, Hungarian. He was an extraordinarily uh, resourceful individual. I mean, some people have asked me, you know, is that why he was able to survive the Holocaust? Because he was somehow, uh, you know, physically strong, young, clever, you know, gifted as a linguist with multiple languages. You know, no, I think Verba himself, like a lot of Holocaust survivors, and I've interviewed quite a few over the years, they always say the same thing, which is that, um, or almost always say that the reason they survived was random good luck and odd word to use in the context of Auschwitz but that they were fortunate that on the on a whim a Nazi uh, SS man who could have killed them instead killed the person next to them you know uh, that's what most of them say rather than saying oh yeah it's because I was so gifted or talented um, so uh, Ver Verber would never have claimed it was anything other than random good luck but it was nev nevertheless the case that he was uh, give you know blessed with these multiple languages that he could speak and therefore rapidly became an asset 
to the intel to the underground to the resistance that existed in Auschwitz you know it may become as a big surprise to people to discover there was an Auschwitz underground uh, and they found a use for Rudolf Verber that would played a part in enabling his a eventual escape alongside with escape, his escape partner Fred Wetzler. Well, he uh, may have been lucky in some ways, but when he was faced with internment, he fled to Hungary as a teen, uh, was caught, escaped from a transit camp, was arrested again. And then when he was 17 in February 1942, he was rounded up by the Nazis and deported with his family to Poland and wound up in Auschwitz that June, imprisoned there until the escape in April 1944. No, but, but didn't he have an important realization fairly early that his imprisonment after, uh, about the imprisonment uh, after he'd been put to work on the ramp where most new arrivals were sent directly to their deaths? That, that's right. I mean, just, just one qualifier. He didn't ever go with his family. He was unusual. He went, he was deported alone. And I think that's important because one thing he realized actually later later on was those people who did have family with them, who did have dependents, children or the elderly, they were much less free to take risks. Mm. I know this sounds crazy in a context where everyone was doomed to die. But in the in actual moment of, of being there at Auschwitz, a lot of them, you know, as we're going to come on to say, they didn't know what fate lay, lay in store for them. And therefore, they thought, OK, let's just keep quiet, not take any risks. And it was somebody who had no other dependents, no one who felt they felt responsible for gave him a degree of freedom. But yes, to your point, which is absolutely bang on, that he was moved around mm. a variety of uh, jobs in Auschwitz as I'm... a slave. I mean, it, you know, people should remember, and I think it's often forgotten, that Auschwitz was in a way two camps at once. There was the death camp where the life expectancy of a Jew was measured in hours. But there also was a concentration camp, a, in effect, a slave labor camp where... Mm. If you were selected to go to the right, that's where you went. Your life expectancy was not long. It was also measured really in months uh, because the Nazis had a policy of working people to death, annihilation through labor, they called it. But Rudy was posted from one job to another to another. And one of them was on the ramp, exactly as you say, a railway platform where the transports, the trains carrying Jews in cattle cars, in wagons from all points across Europe would arrive. And he would see these startled, exhausted, bewildered Jews, old, young, children, men, women, you know, being pushed out of these cattle wagons. Um, and he would see that they would very rapidly line up and do as they were told. They would line up in orderly fashion in columns while the Nazis went through this process of selection. And the reason they would do that is because not one of them knew what fate was yeah. in store for them. They all believed that they were there to be resettled in new communities for new lives in the East. And therefore, they had no reason to, you know, to, uh, to rebel or revolt in some way. They did as they were told because they thought they were going to begin a new life. And what Rudolf Ober, aged just 17 at that time, um, realized was, or 17 turning 18, was that the uh, the key ingredient in the Nazi killing process was deception. Hmm. That those they, they, believed... the SS men would, would sometimes reassure these people and even joke with them all the way up to the doors of the gas chambers. 
That's right, because the Nazis were very, very clear on this, that the it, it was essential for their method that the Jews themselves had no idea what was in store, because if they had no idea, then they would comply with the instructions. And so, as you say, very elaborately, they would lie to them. Uh, they would you know, feign outrage at how the Jewish arrivals had been treated on their journey and say, well, look, oh, I, I'm appalled, an SS man might say, to see how the those Slovak brutes have treated you. Now, of course, so, you know, order will uh, be uh, in place. And they would ask them about their trades and say, it's very important that you tell us your trade because of the new, you know, so we can make sure you give your assigned to work that reflects your professional skills they would tell them you know make sure you tie your shoes together so you can find them afterwards they would say even as they were headed into the gas chambers it was essential it wasn't an added extra it wasn't some kind of macabre joke even those famous fake shower heads embedded in the ceiling of um the gas chambers in the crematoria number two building they were there all as a part of the same idea, which was to ensure that the Jews had no idea what was in store for them until the last moment. And the reason the 18-year-old or teenage Rudolf Verber intuited the reason was because, as he would put it uh, years later, it is much easier to kill sheep than it is to hunt deer. And it's a brutal comparison. But what he's trying to say there is, that if people are herded through in orderly columns because, again, they believe they're being resettled for new lives, that is much easier to handle than the potential of chaos and panic and people running in a hundred different directions where you would have to shoot them one by one, pick them off with a rifle, which is equivalent to a hunter shooting deer. So Rudolf Herber understood in a way that a lot of people much older and more educated than him did not understand he understood that deception and lies were absolutely at the heart of the Nazi method. And that led him to decide to make it his mission to escape and sound the alarm. But wasn't that a couple of years before he was actually able to escape? He had to do That's an awful right. lot to prepare that, that, for his escape. He did. I mean, the, the, he worked on that ramp for 10 months straight, starting in August 1942. So it was into 1943 when the resolve gripped him he's he thought to himself this is only working because of deception the nazis are only able to do this because their victims are ignorant of their fate therefore somebody has to break this ignorance and that somebody might as well be me and that was his thought the sort of arrogance in a way of youth as an 18 year old he thought that was his destiny and yes, it took him a long time, the best part of a year, um, or, or, or just perhaps just less, from resolution to action. And that's because it did take time. He was determined to do it properly. There were Jews who tried to escape and failed. Uh, and he saw them, what happened. They, they would be brought back to the camp and publicly hanged in front of the other prisoners so that the message would you know, sink in that escape is doomed. And so he, together with a fellow uh, Slovak from the same small town of Ternova, a man six years older than him, called Fred Wetzler, the two of them began to hatch a plan. And it was inspired. It was ingenious. Um, I've looked at uh, plenty of Second World War escapes, and I've come away. I know I'm biased, but I'm, I'm convinced this was the most 
a you know dramatic heroic because it was so against the odds. Well, they also so succeeded. By the way, I, I do have to tell people that my guest is Jonathan Friedland. His latest book, The Escape Artist, published by Harper. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. But he also, um, unlike others, um, was put to work a lot. He worked in a variety of uh, roles, which allowed him to acquire what you call an unusually comprehensive expertise in Auschwitz and how it functioned as an economic hub. Um, although many men around him were dying from disease, nutrition, and slave labor, he was among the more fortunate and was even transferred to a job painting skis for German troops. Well, why did they pick him out? Did they just think he was an exceptional kid? No. Uh, um, um, uh, like I said before, I think there was this element of random good luck. And those jobs, some of them, he had his share, by the way, of working in some of those backbreaking. Uh, you know, murderous conditions. I mean, he's in his when he first arrived, he was working at the place known as Buna, where they were building industrial plant factories for some of Germany's biggest corporate names to use for with with the great economic advantage of not having to pay the workers anything because they were powered by slave labor. He worked there, seeing people drop like flies next to him um, through starvation, through beating through shooting, through uh, disease. He, he, you know, he would go to work and with 100 men and come back with just 90, 10. Mm. Uh, 10% of them would, would lose their lives in the course of a single day. He was able partly to survive that, yes, as you say, because he was physically strong. But also, I go back to that point about random good luck. Sometimes there would be a, you know, an SS man who, for sport, would decide he was going to see if he could kill one of the inmates uh, with, you know, with a with a weapon or with a, with his fists. So it might be one of the capos, one of the sort of henchmen, and it might be just the person next to Rudy who got it that day. He he he, like a lot of Holocaust survivors, very emphatic that it wasn't down to their own great qualities, because the implication of that, of course, is that those who did not survive were somehow lacking in those great qualities. Well, he was... I've never yet met a Holocaust survivor who wants to agree with that view. They believe that they were just blessed by arbitrary good fortune. He was also sent to an elite department within the camp known as Canada, Canada spelled with a K, where he sorted through the clothes, baggage, and valuables that the new arrivals deposited before they were taken to the gas chambers. He once discovered $20,000, you write, but destroyed the notes because he um, it might have gotten him in trouble if they'd found him with it. But it was also where, at Canada where he first learned that the Nazis were stealing Jewish goods as a business venture. Um, yes, that's the, right. He I mean, included he, that Can in his report? Yeah, Canada um, was, a, was a really important part of uh, the process, the journey, if you like, that Verba went on, because he'd been there a couple of months. Yes, he had all this variety of backbreaking physical jobs. One of them was involved, absolutely, as you say, for a few days, even painting the military skis that the German army would use. But he was then assigned to Canada, so-called because Canada, in the Central European imagination of that period, was the Canada with a C was associated as a kind of thought of as this land of plenty where the streets were paved with gold. And Canada with a K was a part of Auschwitz where there that was thought of as the sort of El Dorado of Auschwitz, where you could find anything. There was food, there was clothes, there was fine wines, there were diamonds, there was money. And that was because this place, although Verber didn't know this straight away, it took, took him time to work it out. This was the place where Jews' belongings 
were brought as they got off or you know were pushed out of those cattle wagons uh, on arrival immediately a detail of prisoners went into those cattle wagons and brought off all their suitcases and bags they were taken to this vast area of warehouses as part of the camp and those goods were piled up piles of blankets pots pans women's clothes men's clothes children's clothes and slowly the penny dropped for rudolf Erber because he realized there are way more things here than there are people. There are no, I can see all these children's clothes and children's toys and children's exercise books for school, but there are no children here. And slowly he began to realize he was in a place that was wholly new in the history of human civilization, which was a place that was dedicated to mass murder. He and was in stealing, a killing factory. And stealing from the victims. Yeah, so, and this was, this was a, a point that Ruder Verber would be obsessed with for many, many decades after the war because he felt it was underplayed, that this wasn't just uh, a matter of you know unloading prisoners and getting rid of their worldly goods. This was really, as you say, a commercial enterprise. It was a profit center for the SS. They were absolutely meticulous. There was tons of foreign currency, but they would go through, there were people, women usually, who would be to run their fingers alongside the hem of garments, you know, um, skirts, pants, whatever it was, looking, and they would often find um, a, a hidden jewel, a wedding ring, an engagement ring, as a small diamond, which had been preserved there by, or hidden there by Jews who knew they were being transported to the East and thought, we may need this mm. as a bribe, we may, may need this to buy our lives. And the Nazis went through them all. And of course, and this is gruesome to discuss this detail, but they didn't end there. They were determined to extract value from every last corner of their victims, including famously pulling gold teeth out of the mouths of their victims and shaving all their hair, their body hair was sold as well for, you know, even whether it was there was some military use for women's hair, there was, you know, it might be stuffed into, uh, uh, used as a kind of filling everything was there to make money and it did make money and i have in the books the, in the book the precise figures mm. for the billions of dollars in today's money that they made simply by robbing their murder victims blind now verba was also assigned to greet and assist uh in separating arrivals as they exited the cattle cars and he had an incredible memory. He remembered the origins and approximate numbers of every transport that arrived in Auschwitz, which meant that the Verber-Fetzler report, which they completed at the end of April 1944, provided far more detailed picture of the Holocaust than the rumors and more fragmentary accounts that had emerged before. That's right. He Once he had re resolved, Leonard, once he'd made that realization that deception was crucial he then made it his business to get the word out to the world to warn the victims of what fate awaited them and he knew with great insight as a teenage boy he would not be believed unless he had the facts and by the facts he meant meticulous detailed facts and so he set about memorizing the data the detail of every single transport that he witnessed and he witnessed hundreds over that period and what he would do was he would count the number of cattle wagons cattle cars that would come in he would know, learn the point of origin from you know from where in europe the train had left the date and he would work out the number of jewish arrivals per car 
and then tot up the number of cars and work out a total number for that transport. And then he would commit it to memory. And I found in his correspondence an explanation for how he did it. He did it like one of those child's memory games. You know, one of those games like, you know, I yes, today I went to market and I had a basket, a book and a, you know, an orange. And then the next day I had a basket, a book, an orange and an apple. You know, you'd add a new fact each day and he would add each day. He would remember all the previous transports he'd remembered and then add the new one. And I found one bit of evidence that I thought was an extraordinary bit of corroboration, which was years and years later, Rudolf Ferber found himself in New York City, in Manhattan in the 1970s. It was a very hot day. And his waiter arrived with his sleeves of his shirt rolled up. And Verba spotted the tattoo on this waiter's arm. And you'll know that the numbers that were tattooed on Auschwitz inmates' arms corresponded to the transport they'd been brought in on. So he took one look at this man's arm and said, the Polish town of Benjim, 15th of May, 1943. <laughs> and the waiter just paled and thought and said to Verba, how did you know? And did... Verba knew because he saw those numbers and he knew the date and the day and the town uh, where, where this man was from when he had arrived at Auschwitz. Didn't he learn about escapology from Dmitry Volkov, a Russian POW who'd escaped from Sachsenhausen, another Nazi concentration camp? How did that come about? Yeah, I mean, once the young Rudy had decided, young Walter, as he was then, had decided that he was determined to escape, he made it his business to learn about escape. And, you know, with my tongue slightly in my cheek, um, you know, I talk about it as if he was learning escapology from Harry Houdini. There was an older prisoner uh, of captain in the Red Army, um, Ukrainian, actually, but a Soviet soldier, who had himself escaped uh had experience of escape and had been caught and had been a sufficient troublemaker to the nazis that they'd moved him in effect to like the maximum security prison of auschwitz birkenau and verba made it his business to get friendly to this man to warm him up to win his trust and sure enough over time volkov would share with this young protege this young student of his in effect um what he knew and he would tell gave him tips practical do's and don'ts mm. about the business of escape for example he it was he volkov who said once you're out you know that is when the real struggle begins because you will be in nazi occupied poland you do not dare be seen travel at night walk at night and sleep during the day because you mustn't be seen on the move during the daytime hours. So that was one among dozens of very practical tips that enabled he, Verba and Fred Wetzler eventually to mount their own escape. He, he, he told them about Nazi routine, where in cases of escape, the camp was put on full alert for precisely 72 hours. Security in the outer areas was relaxed on, on the assumption that the prisoners must have gotten away. Well, but he also, they, they hid in a tiny he and Wexler uh, hid in a tiny scooped-out bunker under a pile of wooden planks for three days in a lumberyard. Um, they scattered Russian tobacco soaked in petrol all around uh, to uh, put off the, the tracker dogs, so they must have smelled terrible, but um, it worked, obviously. 
Yeah, I, I, I deliberately hold back some of the detail, Lenny, because I'm keen that people buy the book. Mm. So that, um, but you have to read the full detail of how they did the escape is in the book. But suffice it to say, it inquire, it was so ingenious how they did it. It did involve um, to, to, uh, putting uh, sniffer dogs off the scent uh, by giving them, diverting them with the scent of um, tobacco uh, that had been dry, uh, soaked in gasoline and dried. Incredibly clever. Um, and, and they did uh, eventually manage to get out. It worked. And But, you know, as they knew, that wasn't the end of it because they then had to cross uh, marshlands and mountains and forests. And they had many dangerous uh, encounters, strokes of luck along they the did. way. Again, again, it's that luck, you see, Leonard. It is that luck that enabled them but he to had, he, um, get there. He had also uh, been helped by remember, remembering things he'd learned from a children's atlas he'd come across in Canada. Well, that's right. In Canada with a K, he had yeah. seen um, a child's atlas and he had the initiative to quickly flick through the pages to find out where he was um, because, you know, there were, there'd no, been no point at which they really were told where they were going. But he, he had, he'd been to the nearby uh, town of Osvienchem. He'd been there and therefore was able to look that up on the map he tore out the page then later when he was in the latrine he looked at that page committed it to that extraordinary memory of his and disposed of it took a massive risk when he did it it was actually the same place where he disposed of those tw that twenty thousand dollars in cash uh, that he'd also come across and he said he did that out of spite he was he, he knew he could never use it but he didn't want the Nazis to have it. Um, so, but yeah, seeing that map was more or less the only guide he had, and it was only in his head. And when he did break out, he and Wetzler, they or, later on in life, Herbert would say we had no map, no compass, no friends. Yeah, the po because Polish, once out, they had Polish no presence were not their friends, although they were befriended right. by a farmer. That's right. They didn't have what other. Um, escapees from there were other escapees you know Polish political prisoners Soviet prisoners of war what they had going for them was a kind of resistance um, you know a movement outside the camp uh, who would you know help and a Jewish prisoner who had escaped from Auschwitz was not in that position so um, he was uh, uh, he and Wetzler were really alone and they had to just rely on that memory of a map it wasn't even a map they just had the memory of a map he'd seen you know a long time earlier at least a year maybe 18 months earlier and he had to hold that in his head um and and, and make their escape you're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org <laughs> you're enjoying my conversation with Jonathan Friedland. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Escape Artist. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212 
209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Jonathan Friedland, whose latest book is The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World, published by Harper. He's a British journalist who writes a weekly column for The Guardian. He's the author of 11 books and thrillers, mostly under the name, the pen name, Sam Bourne. And um, before we get back to our conversation, I thought I should mention that you're going to have an event at the Museum of Jewish History at 56... Museum of Jewish Heritage. Heritage, I'm sorry. 56 Battery Place next Thursday. In two days' time, yeah. 7 p.m. on Thursday, the 27th. uh, uh, Talking with David Remnick? That's right. So how could David people... Remnick and I, the David Remnick, the editor of the New Yorker, and I will be in conversation about the story you and I are talking about now at the Museum of Jewish Heritage this Thursday evening. How can people register? Uh, I think you should, if you go online, I've been, uh, if you, maybe I've been tweeting it out, um, the details, or if you just go to M- on Twitter at MJH News, you can see details on their Twitter feed, or you just Google Museum of Jewish Heritage. And it's there as an upcoming event. Okay, let's get back to the story. Verba and Wetzler managed to get their story out to the world. How were they able to do that? Well, they spent two weeks, more or less, in hiding. The Gestapo were looking for them. There was that warrant for their arrest uh, that was spread to every corner of the Nazi empire. But there they were. They made contact with the remnant Jewish community of Slovakia. Most of the Slovak Jews, like uh, Rudolf Erber and his fellow escapee Fred Wetzler, had been deported, uh, but some had clung on. And Rudy managed and Fred made contact with them. And eventually they would be with some Jewish community leaders who were working both as the Jewish community, but also with the underground, really, uh, in in a basement of a Jewish home for older people, in the small um, provincial Slovak town of Zilina. And there for two weeks, all the detail, the data sort of poured out of them, Verba uh, explaining um, everything he knew uh, and had, you know, all the information he'd managed to get out. Uh, Actually, less than two weeks. Sorry, that's um, confusing. But for for a period of days, they were there. Uh, And they, and the, Jewish officials of the Slovak community set down all those details, wrote them down in a, in a effectively like a verbatim report. Um, it was 32 single space pages. It was written originally uh, in uh, German, was the first language uh, uh, that it was written into. Um, and that document was then began a kind of escape journey of its own. It was passed hand to hand across borders. And originally um, you know, published through, in a Swiss newspaper. Well, that took some time before it got to that stage. But first, it had to be smuggled through the resistance, through friendly diplomats, through a whole cavalcade of characters. You know, a woman translated it secretly in a in an attic room in, in into Hungarian, and people smuggled copies to each other. But yes, eventually, it reached the desk of Franklin Roosevelt, the desk of Winston Churchill, and the Swiss press. And the Pope. And, and, and the Pope in Rome as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, though that, that journey is, I don't think, has ever been reconstructed before until my book. And it is an extraordinary escape story in its own right, actually, how the word got out. It was one thing for these two men to get out, but for the word to travel underground through Nazi-occupied Europe 
And it was the first full account of Auschwitz. I mean, people knew, the Allied leaders knew that Jews were being killed. Public opinion was hazier, but the Allied leaders were really in the know. But this was the first full detailed account of what was happening in Auschwitz. It It was meticulous. Did it mean world leaders could no longer ignore the Holocaust? Well, they, they, in a way, Leonard, the sad truth is, you know, they, they continued to try and at least put it to one side, if not ignoring it. Uh, that way it encountered, the report encountered, um, I would say, three different sort of barriers. I mean, one of them was practical, that they had been attached to the report a plea from Jewish leaders um, urging the Allies, urging Roosevelt and Churchill to bomb the railway tracks to Auschwitz, figuring that if Auschwitz is a killing factory, then the railway tracks were, in effect, the conveyor belt. So bomb the railway tracks. There was a practical objection that that this was going to require a diversion of military resources away from the war effort. People didn't want to do that uh, in London and in Washington. Then it encountered... You mean to save the Jews? Well, it was going to say that 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 was seen as a diversion from the main focus, which was defeating Hitler in war. And then the other problem, which touches on what I think you've just raised, which was prejudice. Um, And that was this idea that, you know, as one London official wrote, and I've got the document in my book, you know, haven't we already done too much for these wailing Jews? Uh, Another one said, you know, even allowing for a degree of Jewish exaggeration, um, these revelations are, are, are terrible. You know, the suggestion was that somehow you couldn't really believe what Jews were saying. And then the third barrier it ran into, even putting aside the practicalities and the prejudice, was simple incredulity. People just could not believe that this terrible uh, place existed and these terrible things were happening. And that was true even of some Jewish leaders who came, the report was passed to, uh, that they were sceptical. And that is because, you know, it's easy for us to forget this now, but there had never been anything like Auschwitz before. And therefore, the idea of it seemed too impossible to imagine. As we saw on Ken Burns' three-part documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, Allied policy was inhibited by inertia and anti-Semitism. That's right. I mean, I think that's right. And I think it was true in London and in Washington that there was a combination of uh, uh, certainly anti-Semitic prejudice definitely played a big part of it. But also, yes, inertia is a good word for it. There were the sense that there were practical problems with doing this. Uh, and therefore, it's best if we just um, get on with our number one focus, which is winning the war, and don't do anything which might divert from it, even though actually diversion would have been tiny. I mean, there were reconnaissance planes flying over Auschwitz taking photographs. If for one of them to drop a bomb on a railway track would have required almost no diversion at all. But in a way, the problem was, and it links the two, both the inertia and the anti-Semitism, there was a fear that if you made that a big goal and used allied military resources to do it, public opinion in the United States and in um uh, uh, Britain would recoil or rebel or, or, and any, or be displeased at the idea of doing something for the Jews. And Churchill was reluctant to, uh, about that, and so was Roosevelt. They thought their own public opinion might well um, balk uh, at the notion of helping out and saving Jewish lives. Better to say, 
uh, this is all about just a general war effort rather than we're doing this for these people. But didn't the, the Weber Wetzler report uh, spur some leaders to put pressure on Admiral Horthy, the regent of Hungary, to stop the, the deportations? Yes, it did. And so FDR this is... made it clear that Horthy would be made responsible for his actions uh, in, the un, in the then likely event of an Allied victory. So, yeah, I mean, so so the important, and this is where, where we get that figure that I mentioned in the start of our conversation about the 200,000 lives that were saved. There was a series of diplomatic moves, and the thing that started it in train was really your point you made before about the report finds its way through a variety of, you know, eccentric characters, including a British journalist um, in Zurich. Once it reaches Switzerland, there it can make it into the press because Switzerland is neutral at that point and therefore there's no military censorship. Once it is in the press, the leaders um, of uh, uh, the, those allied countries who previously had not done much suddenly do uh, step into action. And that's partly because they fear that their own publics will now know what um, is going on in Auschwitz and will be angry with them for not doing anything. So the Pope, who until then has not acted, at that point, he writes to the leader of Hungary, Horty, as you say, and says, you know, he issues a plea, save these unfortunate souls. Uh, at that point, he can't bring himself to use the word Jew, but he says, save these unfortunate souls. And Roosevelt, through a diplomatic intermediary, as you say, does, a, in effect, a warning mm. to the leaders of Hungary, saying, if you end up on the losing side of this war, and by then it looked like they were going to, we will hold you account for what were not yet then called war crimes. And that is the moment at which Horty, the leader of Hungary, who has so far turned a blind eye to the deportation and murder of 437,000 mm. Jews in Hungary, at that point, worried by Roosevelt's threat that he could be in the dock for war crimes, then, and only then, he halts the deportation of Jews from Budapest, the capital city. And there were about 200,000 Jews in Budapest who would have been next on those trains to Auschwitz. And it is through the publication of the Verbovetzler report that they are, they are, those deportations are halted, those Jews do not get on those trains, and even in one case, a trainload of Jews on its way to Auschwitz was halted and turned back. Those lives were saved by the Verber Wetzler report, which is why I say he and Fred are both towering figures of this period who are long overdue getting their uh, fair recognition. But not everybody is unscathed as a result of the report. Haven't there been fierce debates in Israel and elsewhere about how far Jewish wartime leaders, particularly Rejo Kessner in Hungary helped to facilitate the Nazi extermination program by encouraging compliance rather than revolt? Yeah, I mean, you've put it very strongly there. Um, and But there is that accusation that the uh, that Rudolf Erber himself made, that Reju Kessner, uh, later called Rudolf Kessner, had not, um, had failed to pass on the report that he, Verber and Wetzler had written. They wrote the Verber Wetzler report in order to warn, number one priority, in order to warn the Jews of Europe. That was their main motivation. And particularly the Jews of Hungary, who it was very clear had not yet been pulled into the Nazi inferno. 
but they feared would be next, as indeed they were. And so it was there was a huge responsibility on Kastner as the de facto leader of Hungarian Jews to pass on the Verbovets report. He did not do it. And there is a, as you say, it's a hugely contested, argued about uh, issue. How can you ex make your peace with the fact that Reju Kastner did not warn the Jews of Hungary? And some people say, look, he was thinking all it would do is spread panic. Others were thinking that he was, you know, uh, there were some Jewish leaders who were skeptical. They weren't sure whether you could believe it or not. Uh, and still others uh, point to the fact that Kastner was involved in negotiations with the Nazis of his own and did not want them disrupted by him revealing that he actually knew the end destination. Uh, other people say that those no negotiations were doomed and Kastner knew they were doomed and he was trying instead to save the lives of those people who were prominent in the Hungarian community and who he knew. This argument has divided Israel down the middle, in, especially in its earliest years. It led to a cause celeb trial. Uh, Kastner himself would meet a very dramatic end. Again, I describe that in the book, and I'm not going to detail it here because I would love people to read it. Sure, I but, won't ask. But even down to the next generation, um, there is division. And Kastner's granddaughter, the woman that Rudy, sorry, the granddaughter of the man that Rudolf Verber in part blamed for failing to pass on the word to Hungary, the granddaughter of that man, that Hungarian Jewish leader, is now a politician in Israel and leader of the Israeli Labour Party. Her name is Merav Michaeli. She still defends her father, others, a grandfather, others still attack him. It just shows you this issue absolutely goes deep into the kind of founding DNA of the country. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm speaking with Jonathan Friedland about his latest book, The Escape Artist, which is published by Harper. You report that because Verba never shied away from any of the controversies, sometimes alienated Jewish audiences by refusing to, quote, serve up a morally comfortable narrative in which the only villain, villains were the Nazis. Um, and then after the war, he lived in Israel. Uh, was he uncomfortable there? Is that why he moved to London eventually to Canada, to, to Vancouver? Yeah, he was in Israel for a very short period, less than two years. He didn't like it there. He didn't get on there, partly because the, the aftermath, the fallout of the Kastner trial and the Kastner affair was playing out. And he couldn't believe that Kastner and people, his, you know, his colleagues were now quite dug in and established in the new state of Israel. Uh, but the main reason is that he had got married after the war. His marriage had not worked out. It had ended very badly. But his ex-wife and, crucially, his daughters were living in London. And Verber was determined to be close to them. And so he did move. Hmm. Although uh, his oldest I mean, daughter committed suicide. So I don't know whether yeah. he had any responsibility for that. Well, that came many, many years later. He published um, a, a memoir called I Cannot Forgive. That's right. Uh, as told to the London journalist Alan Besick in 1963, how much help did you receive in writing this book from his letters, his first wife, Gerda, and his widow, Robin? Well, I was so fortunate because uh, Rudolf um, uh, uh, Verber left behind, in effect, two women who had uh, loved him at different stages of his life. Robin Verber, as you say, is, is Rudy Verber's widow. 
she was wonderfully helpful for this book. We spoke for many, many hours, and she managed to find in crucial documents and papers. But also, Rudy's first wife, uh, Goethe Verbova, um, had, uh, I knew, all I knew is that she had lived in London. Uh, I didn't know if she was still alive. I didn't know where in the world she they was. They had been childhood uh, sweethearts. Well, I was going to go on to say that. Yeah, she was uh, still living in London. She was 93 years old. Um, and what was amazing about talking to her was that she was not only his first wife in post-war communist Czechoslovakia, but she was also, uh, as you say, his teenage sweetheart. She had known the Rudolf Verber who was a boy. She knew him when he was 14, and therefore she knew the person before Auschwitz. And that was tremendously important for me in terms of providing a kind of layer of understanding that otherwise I wouldn't have, because everything else written about him or by him was, was the post-Auschwitz man. And this was the pre-Auschwitz boy that she remembered. And was, she was, was able to tell me, she was able to tell me a lot about him. And when we uh, had met four or five times, we always were very careful to sit outdoors in her garden, uh, socially distanced because of the threat of COVID. She, on my last visit, said, look, my grandson is here because there's something I want to give you. And he went upstairs. Uh, it was, she was too frail to do this herself. He came downstairs with a red suitcase and Goethe passed it to me and said, these are Rudy's letters. And inside the red suitcase was packed with these old photographs and handwritten letters uh which was a, a, an absolute mine of insight and information just to see his handwriting over pages and pages to his daughters uh telling this um extraordinary you know that's the his responses to his the impact of this extraordinary story on his life and it was at that moment when i got that red suitcase i thought okay i am meant to write this book we only have about a minute and a half two minutes left but i'm wondering about alfred wetzler um in the years following the war was he angry because he thought verba had taken all of the credit they did fall out uh, in years later. Part of it was because, and we haven't talked about this, but Rudy did escape from uh, communist Czechoslovakia in one of those classic Cold War sort of midnight defections. He got out and Wetzler didn't. And that meant they were in very different positions because Rudy was living in the West and could speak quite freely about what had happened. Wetzler was still behind the Iron Curtain where it was not really acceptable to speak about the Jewish dimension of the Nazi persecution, to talk about the Holocaust as a Jewish tragedy. You couldn't really do that. And so Wetzler couldn't really tell his story. He ended up writing a memoir that he had to fictionalize as a novel and change the names, and he wrote it under a pseudonym, whereas Verber could go out there and tell his story. Now, neither of them were ever famous, but it did mean that among historians and things, Verber was more prominent uh, than Wetzler was. And I think there was some resentment there. And Verber also did in some ways uh, have a, a, you know, um, a, a lower opinion, I think it's fair to say, of Wetzler for the fact that he had stayed behind the Iron Curtain and stayed in communist Czechoslovakia. He believed that if you disapproved of this system, then you should just get out. After all, I think Verber thought, you and I, you, me, me, you uh, Fred, and me, Rudy, we know about escape. We've done it before. And I think he held it against Fred Wetzler that Wetzler hadn't 
uh, got out of communist uh, Czechoslovakia. So they did have this parting of ways, and I chart that in the book. And Wetzler died several decades ago, really unrecognized, mm. by all accounts, a, a pretty lonely and perhaps even bitter man. Uh, and that was just part of one of that one of many tragic fallout impacts of this and I have life. To, I have to leave it there, unfortunately. Jonathan Friedland's book, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World, is published by Harper. He writes a, a weekly column for The Guardian, and I suspect the fact that he's the author of 11 books and thrillers, mostly under the pen name Sam Bourne, helped him in telling this story. Uh, and a reminder that he will be appearing at the Museum of Jewish Heritage at 56 Battery Place this coming Thursday at 7 p.m. in conversation with David Remnick, and there'll be a book signing. Um, so thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Leonard. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to talk about this, uh, this extraordinary story, so I'm grateful. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes and Apple and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter. If you would like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show and this station coming to you. In this case, the show weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else and as I mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing The Escape Artist by Jonathan Friedland so why not make that call now 212-209-2950 go online to give to WBAI.org and you might also consider becoming a sustaining member what we call a BAI buddy for five, ten, fifteen, twenty dollars a month. Either way, we hope you call right now because BAI relies a hundred percent on listener donations. We're the only station on the New York radio dial that's completely listener sponsored. And we hope that you can join us tomorrow when Christina Heatherton will discuss her new book, Arise Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. We'll see you then. <laughs>